Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to Griefcast with me, Cariad Lloyd. Griefcast is a place to talk, share and laugh about the peculiar human process of death and grief. Each week I talk to a different person about their experiences of grief and death as we remember someone that they have lost along the way. Whether it was a long time ago or you've just joined the club. Welcome to Griefcast. Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The coma keeps secrets. There's no place for the coma in the geography of my memory. I can't visit the coma. I can't call for it. If I try to find it, if I plead for it to come, it doesn't hear. Or if it hears, it refuses to come out of its cave and tell me what happened. It hangs back in the shadows, forbidding me from having a conversation. There isn't even a sign saying, this is not a memory. Hey, Griefsters. <laughs> bit jolly, wasn't it? Sorry, a bit too jolly for Griefcast. Um, I hope you're having an okay week. Thank you so much as ever for your amazing support of the show. It means so much to me, your beautiful comments and wonderful messages. If you have been enjoying this series so far, please do rate, review or subscribe. It does help other Griefsters find the show and is hugely, hugely appreciated. You might have recognised that voice already. That was, of course, the incredible, the amazing, the legend that is Michael Rosen. Michael is one of the best-known figures in the children's book world. He's renowned for his work as a poet, performer, a broadcaster, scriptwriter, and he is Professor of Children's Literature at Goldsmiths University, London. He also has a brand new book out called Many Different Kinds of Love, A Story of Life, Death and the NHS, you probably heard me talking about it already because it is currently sponsoring this week's episode but genuinely I'm holding a copy of in my hand now and it's a truly beautiful book and I think we all know how fucking hard this year has been and it, it was even harder for Michael what he went through and you know as I've said on like the adverts as well it's you know it's diaries from the people who cared for him it's texts from his wife it's poems from him and just his way with words it 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 really is so cheesy but like I've I've just been reading it and it yeah it's really powerful because it is genuinely reflecting back what a lot of us have been through this past year and 
and how how awful it's been so yeah i really i really can't recommend the book enough and i can't recommend this episode enough um you'll probably hear me tearing up as i'm speaking to him i know this is an emotional time but he I, d- I don't know where to begin with michael just his way with words and the way that he uses language as such a tool to talk about grief and and, and such a just so it, it's genuinely healing and yeah i don't want to like fangirl him too much you know i i love children's books so much and i think they can be so looked over and i'm so proud that he is so revered in this country for for the absolute genius that he is and and we are so lucky to have him and we're so lucky that he made it through the year that he just had and this is this is just a faff i'm gonna say it i think it's a brilliant episode not because of anything i do just because i could have sat and listened to him talk about writing and grief and how he deals with all of those things for a very long time because just yeah he's he's a very brilliant mind and i'm very glad and lucky that i got to speak to him so i spoke to michael remotely um as he says in the interview he's still recovering we talked about all sorts of things what happened to him with covid grief in general but we also talked about his son eddie who passed away when he was a teenager and if you have read michael rosen's sad book you might know that story as well we do talk about that and again it's another incredible book dealing with grief so so i hope you enjoy the interview and if you stay to the very end there is another poem read by michael from his new book as well thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me because i'm sure most people are aware it has and maybe you're bored of hearing this phrase but it has not been an easy year um and you're only just just really recovering i suppose is that fair to say do you feel like you're had a good last month uh it's a job in progress it's a, <laughs> yes um recovering is is the key thing i don't think after something like that you are recovered yeah you you are you're in the ing of the recover yeah goodness me yeah and you were hospitalized in march last year that's right march 2020 so just people to get and and if they didn't know your story a year and you are still and still recovering from your um diagnosis with covid and and your near-death experience really yes that's right near death several times i gather i mean one i kind of know a bit about <clears throat> that was at the very beginning when i was ill but didn't realize how ill i was and it was only thanks to the intervention of my wife and a local neighbor uh, friend and gp who slapped one of these oximeters on my um, on my finger well it was my wife who did it actually but um, anyway it was the fact that the GP had it and um, that revealed that my level of oxygen I know it all sounds very technical but um, was at a level that really I was lucky to even have been conscious and if I'd if we'd let it run for another hour or two I might have slipped off the dial um, altogether and um, so that was one moment and I think there were other moments when I was put into intensive care. I just, you know, it's funny, I, when you speak to people, we, we've all, all of us will say, oh, it's been a tough year, like, oh yes, God, it's been really tough. But when you speak to someone who's genuinely had a tough year and genuinely been really close to the sort of heart of COVID, because I think so many of us have been, you know, not at the epicentre of it, you know, kind of on the outskirts and affected in in such weird ways of, oh, we can't go to the shops, we can't do our job. It's frustrating. But yeah, to speak to you and what you've been through as you said so so close to it and right at the start when we really didn't know 
when people really didn't know quite what was going on or what was causing it, it's, yeah, I'm very glad that you're still here, really, that you've you said that you're recovering. Thanks, yes. I mean, at that stage, there were, you know, lots of mysteries about the illness, and I think there still are. Mm. The thing was, was that to start off with, I think doctors assumed it was purely a respiratory illness, or the response to it would be lungs, that would be the problem. The fact that when we get an infection, a viral infection in the lungs, the classic thing that happens is that our lungs fill up with fluid and it's very hard for doctors to get rid of the fluid. That's the usual response. The only problem is, is that this virus seems to create a response in us as humans that is an immune response or an inflammatory response that affects other bits of us. So the blood gets sticky. I'm using the technical word used by the consultant there. The blood gets sticky, so we get blood clots. Mm. And then it does seem to have an ability, either in response or the virus itself, to attack the nervous system. So a lot of people are reporting numbness. Me too, I've got numb uh, toes. Um, So numbness and tingling and various other problems with our peripheral nervous system. Mm. And the knock-on effect of the stickiness in the uh, in the blood is that of course if you get blood clots this can cause you strokes heart attacks uh, micro bleeds in the brain um, which happened to me uh, so that knocked my eye out one of my eyes out the left mm. eye and the left ear so these it sort of it starts off being this thing that feels a bit like flu breathe you breathe and it feels a little bit like pneumonia that a pneumonia that you can get over for many people that is the case But then for others, it seems to have a knock-on effect. And then other organs start (laughs) copping out as well. So my uh, kidneys and uh, liver, I think, uh, started getting into trouble. So it it became, for some of us, a multiple attack almost. I know it's it's not, you know, viral viruses don't really attack you. (laughs) It's hard to find another imagery, another kind of way of describing it, you know, this the battling of our, um, we battle against it and it attacks us. In fact, when you do look at these things under a microscope, it does look a little bit like that, you know, white blood corpuscles rush to the place mm. to try and deal with it and all that. So, uh, yeah, that's that's the medical side. Yeah, I'm, I spoke to, um, uh, she's a radio broadcaster and writer, Sophie Black, for an episode of this a long time ago. And her mum died of lung cancer and she was trying to speak to a consultant like, you know, what happened? Why did my, what happened to my mum? And the consultant said something which really stuck with me, which is human beings would love our medical, um, like our medical story to be a a, a nice, simple narrative. But actually it's a spider web. And, you know, one thing goes over here, that might affect over here. But one thing might have gone over there in that web years ago and you didn't know about it and she's like that's actually you know when you're trying to heal someone you need to look at the whole the whole thing and that's what I think like you said with this virus we were all hoping oh it's just flu there you know and that's it behaves like this you get a cold you get better but as you said the bizarre effects that some people are living with and long covid which you know are, are still living with is yeah not what anyone expected I think this time last year when we were sort of marching into it Yes, well, the thing about viruses, I think, again, you know, um, people are learning more and more about them, that some viruses you just get over. I mean, the obvious one is the common cold. You know, we get snuffles and dribbles and coughs and splutters, and then a few months later, it's gone, and then we get it again. Um, You know, if only all viruses were like that. But then plenty of people who will tell you they've had the equivalent of, or, I mean, to put a label on it, ME Mm. and post-viral syndromes of one sort or another, 
it's clear that viruses have an ability, again, I'm anthropomorphizing it, but have the ability to hang about in your tissues. And we have so many different kinds of tissues. It's hard to understand it, isn't it? You know, we have blood and we have muscles and we have organs and we have lymph and we have interstitial tissue. You know, we've got all these different kinds of tissues in the body. And who knows where these tiny, tiny microscopic and they're not even organisms as such because they don't really live. Mm. They can only live in a host. So they're kind of half-life creatures, really. Not creatures, even. <laughs> viruses. So they can hang about in a body. And in fact, the last conversation I had with, as it happens, it was a group of consultants who um, asked me to read a poem to them, <laughs> which was very nice. Um, but they were discussing the fact that they're scratching their heads over the fact that it appears as if there is a particular tiny group a cluster as they call it of people who are suffering from long covid and that is young women marathon runners now that sounds completely nuts wow. why would covid affect these but there are some young women around who were semi-marathon runners marathon runners you know what are they called triathlons iron woman all yeah. the, these kinds of people and if they got covid they got over the illness all right but it seems to have completely knocked out their fitness so this immediately kind of rings bells for, for consultants as they try to find a rationale as to why. And one theory is, is that if you run marathons and do all that sort of stuff, you are effectively micro-injuring your muscles because you're pushing them to the very, very limit. So they ask the question, no answer's coming. Is there something in the fact that these people pushing themselves so much somehow or other make themselves prone to something in either the virus or in the immune, the inflammatory response. And then the other thing they're looking at is the fact that in every one of our cells in our body, we have a little thing called a mitochondrion. And the mitochondrion is what they call, they nickname when you do A-level biology, which I did the equivalent of, they call it the powerhouse yeah. of the cell. <laughs> yeah. So the powerhouse of the cell. And they're saying, well, what if the virus is somehow or other getting into the mitochondria in the body? And that's what's giving people this terrible exhaustion. Mm. And I'm experiencing it where one day, you know, I'm as bright as a button and I can walk about and do lots. And then the next day I just seem to be completely just, you know, flat out. I could just, just want to sit on the sofa. Yeah. And, you know, at my age, there's plenty of people who have that anyway. <laughs> so I'm not complaining too much. But I can imagine that for people aged between naught and 65... That is a real worry. It's yeah. happening to them. They can't go to work five days a week. Mm. They find they can only go every other day or, you know, two two days a week. So that, I mean, connecting with what you're talking about, grief, is that one of the problems for people with COVID is the before and after. So what many of us are doing are really grieving mm. the loss of this person we were before. Yeah. And this applies, I mean, in, in my case, it was quite severe, but in other people's cases, just this business of exhaustion or if your life did revolve around fitness and running marathons and you can't anymore, it, it's a form of grief because you, you're you not that person. Mm. So th though it, we've just been talking about it quite technically, there's a, there's a heavy emotional burden if you like there's a lot of emotional work to have to cope with the fact that the thing you're grieving about is you mm. 
you're not yeah. grieving about the loss of a loved one, which heaven knows is hard <laughs> enough, but you're you're grieving for me, you know, yeah. um, the the me that isn't there anymore. I th- yeah, we've we've talked about that a lot this year on the show. That <laughs> the only way I can think that this this year has felt quite griefy is how I've been describing it. Of like, and when it first happened, I was a bit um, surprised. I was like, oh, this feels like the first lockdown. I was like, this feels like grief. What this is, but it's not. You know, I'm just at home. Why does this remind me of grief? And I think it's interesting at the moment. I've noticed a lot of people feeling emotional, on edge, and it suddenly dawned on me. I was like, we're coming up to the year anniversary which for a lot of Greek people who have been through large grief is a really hard moment when you think, wow, I've done a whole year without that person. And I think that's exactly what, what you're saying is a lot of people are having to come up to, wow, my life was then, you know, February 2020, and now it's gone. And they call it, they refer to it as ambiguous loss these days, where it's like, it's not a person, it's, you know, a part of you or a thing that was. But I think it, it's really important that people allow themselves that it is a loss, it is a grief, it absolutely is. On the show, um, Michael, we often start with the question, who are we remembering today? So I just wanted to ask, is there somebody specific or a grief, a specific grief you'd like to talk about? Um, well, I, I always remember Eddie. Eddie, Eddie is my son, um, and he died not long before he was uh, 19. Um, sorry, I, I get muddled with all this because I try not to sort of remember it in numerical yeah, terms. Of I course, just sort of yeah. remember the feeling of him. Um, and anyway, one of the great things about COVID is that your brain goes foggy. <laughs> um, so, yes, um, and uh, he died of meningitis, uh, meningococcal septicemia, to be really precise mm-hmm. about it, because meningitis can um, kill you in a variety of ways. And that too is that's a, that's a bacterium, actually, not a virus. And he died of that. And if I remember him every day. I think about him every day. Um, I can't say that, to be absolutely honest, that I grieve for him in the way that I did for at least the first few years. Mm. What I do now is think about him. Mm. And though it's, I'm, I'm sad about it, it, I wouldn't call it grief, because grief is, for me, how can I put it, it's it feels to me when you are at your most helpless and most vulnerable. Mm. So, in a sense, that's where I've parked grief. And I've sensed that for myself this year, that there have been times when I've been so full of regret about myself mm. uh, that it has felt like grief. But with Eddie, um, it's moved into another place. So it's not what I used to have when I thought about him. It's it feels safer. It feels that I can talk about it and live with it and think about him, think about how he was in a way that doesn't somehow or other leave me helpless. Mm. So, but I do think about him every day, yes. Yeah, I think, oh, I think that's interesting. I'm sorry, just, just taking what you said, because I think you're right. There's sort of grief with a capital G, I suppose, isn't it, at the beginning, when it really is... G-force. Yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> and it really is there's nothing else in your world it's just grief and your life is sort of over there and blurred and then and I so my dad died when I was 15 so I'm 20 plus years into talking about him and I feel you know similar especially the last four or five years I've reached a place where I can remember him I can talk about him and, it, and it's still sad it's still I'm not like well hey <laughs> he died but I I feel yeah, it's definitely become something. You're you're right. I can understand that the, that word isn't quite doing the 
the heavy lifting it needs to anymore. How long has it been since Eddie died, just out of interest? So how long ago was it? So he died in 1999. Oh, OK, uh, yeah. So my dad died in 1988, so yeah, 20-plus something is... I, I now just say 20-plus, because I'm like... <laughs> yeah, you get lost with it, yeah, don't you? Yeah. It's, it's funny, isn't it? Because the numbers, though they're all there, you know, and when you, when you do, like, family history like I do, you get really hooked on numbers. Was he born in 1878 or 1879? Like it's really important. And then when you do tie it down, you go, yes. And then you think afterwards, why does it exactly matter? Yeah. Anyway, so, you know, in a sense, when you sit there and... When I sit there thinking about Eddie, it's not numbers that kind of mm. surface. I don't think, oh, was he nearly 19 or was he nearly 18? It's not sort of, I just have a sensation of him physically, mentally, socially, tangibly, uh, even the smell, even his, you know, his own personal body odor, you know. <laughs> no, no, I can remember those things and, I, and that's where I live. I live with, and his voice and the sound of his voice or the look of him when he, when he was telling a joke or something like that. All those things matter. And so when people say, as you just did, so how was he? When was it? I know you, it's fair enough because you want to kind of focus it. It's a little bit of me goes blurry and I'm going, was he 18 or 19? Of course, he was 18, but very nearly 19. 19. Yeah. And it, when was it? Was it, it was 1999. So as you say, that's uh, nearly, yes, just coming up to, uh, nearly, to, to, in fact, in April, um, nearly 22 years ago. Yes. Wow. There we are. Look, I've pieced it together. Yeah, yeah. sorry, I didn't mean to make you piece No, no, it's, uh, it's quite interesting because the funny thing about COVID is that it does seem to cause some kind of a brain fog. Mm. I sit there and test myself, um, as plenty of older people do, with names. And sometimes I'm quite shocked by a name of someone really, really, really famous that I can't get hold of. Mm. So I've written about it in my book. Um, was that I sat there for an evening trying to remember Tom Cruise's name, <laughs> right? So, you know, you can get through life without knowing Tom Cruise's name. It's it's an incredible, you know, achievement, really, on my part. Um, but um, you can get through life with it, <laughs> without it. But I sat there going, right, I remember him on Graham Norton and how he stood up and I can see his face. A Mission Impossible, yeah, I can remember him doing that. Oh, what's the name of that lovely film where... He's the guy who cracks the mafia. I was like, yeah, that's right. Was it Magnolia? What is? Anyway, you know, and I was going through all these movies, even the Scientology bit, you know, um, <laughs> and I could do it all, and I couldn't get his name, you know, and um, so there was that, and then I then had a knock on. Then I found that I couldn't remember Meryl Streep's name, <laughs> and I even had a problem with George Clooney. So come on, come on, so no, I now not George, had, not George. No, exactly, not George. What else? <laughs> I mean, I had a real. I had three. I suddenly thought I've got a syndrome here. It's Hollywood megastar syndrome that I can't remember their names, and um, I've, and I had another one yesterday. I had uh, just yesterday that I, I watched that uh, movie. Whiplash. Oh, yeah, yeah. And we sat up and watched it, and I've seen it before, and it's as it happens, it's our, my wife and my, our, our youngest son, it's his, one of his favourite films. He absolutely loves it. Anyway, so even though I have seen it before, we sat and watched it again and squirmed and squidged yeah. around as the really, ah, you know, when he's yelling at them and so on, and the, the excruciating ending when oh, he's God, sort of yeah, yeah. Drumming, beating drumming. himself up to play. Yeah. And, then, and then I sat down, I think, the following morning, and I tried to remember the title of the film. Oh. And I went, what, what's, what's it called? And I was getting drumstick, <laughs> um, uh, head bash, um, 
and I couldn't get uh, in the end I went to Emma's my wife I said Ems what's the name of that film Whiplash yeah that's right so it's, it's there's something going on you need to go um, to the consultants with this you know they've they found this like marathon runner thing you need to be like guys there's one other thing you've missed and it's Hollywood it's, film stars it's Hollywood film stars and Hollywood films yeah. that there's it's a clear thing that the virus finds its way <laughs> to that part of the brain where you've parked Meryl Streep George Clooney and Tom, Tom Cruise. Cruise and Whiplash <laughs> and they're all there and there's a pill there's a pill that you can have it and it's called um, Hollywood Tonin <laughs> and you would have to then take it and it would suddenly boing yeah. and suddenly come back it's called Jurassic Park not Jurassic Paul <laughs> yes got it yeah yeah I, I think I'm it's interesting I, I am I am a bit obsessed with narrative as a writer and I do kind of try and hook onto it of like when did it happen but I'm starting to get to the point like you said, and it's funny, I'm come, April is my anniversary month as well. So it's only when you just said it's 22 years that I had to admit, oh, it's 23 years for me in April, because I've just been saying 20 plus, because I didn't really want to like number it. I just thought 20 plus is fine. Like, what more do you need? It, a long time. So yeah, I guess it's trying to... So I think it's interesting when you speak to someone who, for both of us, when something was such a long time ago, a lot of the guests I speak to, they are in the stage when they can tell you the time, the date, the day, because it was only two or three years ago. And it's interesting, as you said, what happens to grief, that it doesn't, those numbers become a lot less important, you know. Whereas I think at the beginning, you really hang on to them, they really mean something to you. Um, I was just wondering, the way you were describing Eddie, it was so nice, the way you were saying, like, you just have this sense of him of like the way he looks away this and it sounded quite writerly you know like do you think that's helped you in a way that you can kind of capture him through words and memories in the way that you would do a poem yes i do i i think that the ability that all human beings have to put our feelings into words there we are look we have the phrase for it put our feelings into words so quite often we do that just in our heads mm. because we have this thing called inner speech where we, if you like, process the world inside ourselves. And, of course, we produce much more language in our heads than we ever get to produce speaking and writing. Now, so writing, I see, as a sort of an arm of inner speech. But it's a very particular kind of arm because, in a sense, inner speech produces the writing. But when you do it, it's a form of a kind of shaving down or refinement or you know like a sculptor takes a rock and then makes something from it so writing in a way is it's a paring down whittling down until you've got something that you feel expresses that feeling or that scene mm. or that moment now finding those words to put them on the page as we know, if you work with children or work in writers' workshops or anything like that, or as new, if you're doing up stand-up and so on, is this is a great effort, and mm. some people find it easier than others, and some people spend their whole lives doing it, like I do, and other people do it just every now and then. But it's as much effort as, you know, trying to create a, a wood sculpture out of mm. a chunk of wood. It's, 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 it takes effort, but when you've done it, there is a set for me at any rate is a sense of release because i've i've got that stuff that inner speech whatever it is into an order and not everybody loves order um but it, you know there is a there is quite an impulse in most of us you know even if it's laying the table mowing a lawn 
making sure I've got clean clothes, in my case, you know, trimming my beard, all these things, we've, we're all quite interested in order. Mm. And it, when we don't, the, 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 the human dissolves, it dissipates, you know, this is the state. I mean, again, with grief, when you're in complete and total grief, it's very hard to put anything in order. To boil yourself an egg is a mm. huge problem and a fantastic victory if you can do it. You know, and that's, and so it's quite interesting that one of the ways we can gauge our state of mind is to see whether we are doing something that puts things in order. So when it comes to writing, what's special for me about it is it appears, I can't be 100% sure it's true, but as if I'm getting my emotions and memories and feelings into an order. Mm. Now, I'm not going to say it's the order or the best order. I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't make that claim. But it is an order in the same way as, you know, if you're laying a table, you can put the knife one side, the fork the other, and you swap over. You don't die. <laughs> it's just, and in fact, it still works. I mean, you just pick up the knife and fork. Yeah. So it's a bit like that with writing. You put it into an order. Mm. And then when you have, there is a sense of release and satisfaction and re release and relief, both. Um, and a sense of satisfaction. For me, at any rate, some writers feel quite frustrated with what they write and just think, well, that was rubbish, I didn't get it. And they push it away quite angrily and say it's for others to decide. But I do get a satisfaction, not that I think it's good, but that it has released me, it has yeah. relieved me. So all that, now when that comes to grief, that in a sense becomes even more important because this is not me writing about the fact that my mum used to I don't know, drink sour milk, which has been one of those things that's been kind of tickling me a little bit recently, the, how, the way in which my mum used to drink sour milk. So it's not a grieving thing, mm. but I, I, I like the idea of getting that down on paper and remembering my mum slurping the sour milk. <laughs> OK, so that's one kind of writing. But when it comes to grief, it's not just, <laughs> I've, got, I've got that thing about how my mum, and she drank sour milk for cultural reasons. I've pieced it together. You know, her grandfather was a, a Polish dairyman and Poles actually do you can go to a polish shop and buy sour milk my mum used to make it so anyway all that um so that's fun and that's nice but with grief it's kind of more urgent in a way mm. it, there's a there's an imperative about it that the grief is bothering you and then the relief and release matters because you've got some relief from the grief well, hey rhymes relief from the grief through the writing and, you know, people find relief from grief in many ways. And all I can say is I've found writing has worked for me. I'm not going to say it worked for everybody, because if writing is really hard, mm. it will just be frustrating. But if you like doing this ordering thing, I'd recommend it. <laughs> Mike, that's... Oh, you're brilliant, <laughs> that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> because I just think that's... That's so that's so true, that sense of order. Because grief, I've said this before, like grief is chaos. That is what it does. It, it reminds you that you are utterly not in control of anything and that you're on this spinning rock and you're this tiny fleck and actually all that you can guarantee is that you are going to die and other people are going to die. That's the only thing that has ever been promised to you that will happen. And grief, like... Grief doesn't just let you know that. Grief like screams it in your face. And it, and it's so overwhelming and it, and it makes you feel so lost and like everything's out of your control. And I'm, I'm quite an orderly person. I, I get calm once the room is tidy and I can't write until 
which is why at the moment I, it's, it's a tip and it's driving me mad because children. Um, and I think you're so right. The, the release it can give you in, in just grabbing a little bit of control, if that's how you want to express yourself. As you said, some people, it, you know, some people sing, some people dance, some people tell jokes, whatever it is that you want to express the, the chaos. I think it's important. And we often say on the show, like when you're in big grief, like if you've got dressed, it's a win. Like if you've bored an egg, it's, I think people underestimate how hard, again, a bit like what we're saying about COVID, like how vulnerable you are in grief. And so how, how tiny, 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 all the the small things suddenly are huge, you know, suddenly are, are very, very important. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Griefcast with Carrie Ad Lloyd. Your book, this the sad book, about Eddie that so often we're on Twitter at the grief cast and often I'll retweet people saying oh does anyone have any book recommendations I've you know I've lost a somebody and your book sad book comes up again and again and again and I just wondered how do you feel having written that obviously in a place of very very much sadness do you is it sometimes hard to still see it or is it still is it a comfort to know it's still there yes it is it is a comfort you see, one of the jobs of a writer, you don't have to take it on as a burden, but one job that writers have taken on is to bring the news, to bring, be a te- to bring testimony from one place to another. And a lot of writing is about, you know, I went, went to this place and I saw this and I'm telling you about it. <laughs> and then if you think fiction, it in its own way does something similar. So fiction tells stories about people in... in difficult problems and you wonder about what it must be like to face I don't know getting lost in space you know mm. or whatever I mean it could be a complete fantasy or or you know the hobbits or whatever they are up against the orcs you know you you can <coughs> empathize with people in in 
who are going through difficult times or, or lovely times, you know, with love and sex and whatever else. You, you, you follow it and wonder what it would be like. And so fiction can bring you news of that. And non-fiction, you know, I've been reading some books about the Blitz in Belfast for some work I've been doing, you know, and the, the, the writer has pieced together things very factually, but, you know, part of the, in, the, the way you follow it is that you go there and experience the Blitz, this thing of bombs falling out the sky. So the, here is a writer bringing me news from the Blitz in, in Belfast during the Second World War. So then there's a kind of poetry of, that I've written and the kind of book with, with uh, the sad book is I'm, as it were, bringing the news of what it feels like on a very narrow basis to be a dad who loses his son and then broader, anybody losing a loved one. Mm. So I, I bring the news. Now, the way you bring the news will vary hugely. You know, some people, they, they in a sense talk about it in very effusive terms and that's great you know that's their way of doing it other people do it by making stories i've found both with um eddie and myself with with covid that the way to do it that sort of works for me to start off with is to be quite analytic you know i can remember the sound of they put eddie in a body bag upstairs where, where, where he had died and I can remember the sound of the zip mm. and I can remember them they, he, because he was such a big lad they couldn't lift him down the stairs so they slid it down the slid his body down the stairs and I can remember this very clearly so that would be something I'd write about because it's not hurtful to me to write about it in fact it's a release for me to put that into words say it and then I know I've sort of taken a photograph of it in words yeah now if then other people read it and have a sense of it right then and there and they tell me that that helped them then of course that's like a huge I mean again that's anything that a writer might want is that your anything you write can begin a conversation with other people whether that's an actual conversation or a conversation in their own minds and so you know, if you write something and people go, hmm, hmm, yeah, hmm, yeah, then, you know, you failed. If, if, if people are irritated by what you've written, in a way, that's actually quite a result too. That's not necessarily very satisfying, but it is a result. And then if people then say, wow, that made me think in whatever ways they express that, or I felt that or something like that, then that's the double bonus. That's it worked for you and it's worked for them. So... Uh, with Sad Book, I kind of feel, first of all, that Quentin Blake, who mm. did the pictures, he he read me in a way that I, I feel very uh, grateful to him and very, if somehow they feel appropriate. Mm. They are, you know, if you, you look at some illustrations of stuff that you have and they feel brilliant and really good but you don't necessarily feel at home with them. Yeah, yeah. A bit hard to describe, but because I've known Quentin for so long and he's drawn stuff to go with my book since 1974, would you believe? Wow. Um, that when I look at those pictures, it, it, yes, it feels like me, they, they, even though it's not, they're not photographs, you know, but it, that, if that feels like a, a long-standing family friend um, reading me and getting it what feels to me, mm -hmm. showing me back 
to myself in a way that's appropriate. And then again, when I hear that other people have responded to his pictures and my words that way, again, that's just, it's wonderful. You know, you, you want to, in a way, you want your writing to be like nice presents to people, no matter how tough they are. Mm. You know, we read, you know, I don't know, Anna Karenina or something, you know, it's a tough read. Um, but uh, that's a, that was, you know, Tolstoy's present to us. Mm. Oh, that's such a lovely way of putting it, tough presence. <laughs> because, yeah, and I think the sad book, there's a particular, there's, there's something magical when people who work together really know each other and are honest. And I think you do get that with the sad book, that you're being so honest with us. And then Quentin obviously knows you so well and is being so honest with us and with you that you can't help as a reader, but see 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 the situation for what it is and there's no i think it's delivered so beautifully but it's very 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 truthful and that's what i've always wanted with this show to just be very very truthful about it to be like this is what it is it's not perfect it's not great it's not amazing it's not terrible it's just this is what it is and yeah it's the sad book is it is a uh, yeah it's a tough present but it's beautiful did you find how did you find because obviously you're you know especially you and quentin are known for children's literature beautiful beautiful works of um literature that children adore how did you find when sad book after it came out and you had the children talking to you about that did you sort of have to suddenly face that conversation from their perspective or were you sort of prepared for that having written it well it actually arose out of conversations with children oh, because wow. i'd written about eddie when he was a a funny baby and a funny toddler. I was doing shows and people would say, young kiddies, would, I remember once at Edinburgh Festival and I'd just been doing my kind of performances and then I was saying, are there any questions? And the child put the hand up and said, well, so what happened to Eddie? How's, how's Eddie? Because this was, he would, be, would have been about 20 yeah. at that point, you see. And so I, I had to say in front of 500 people, well, he died. Because you, you've got to be honest, mm. you see, you use that word, you've got to be straight, it's no point in going, he's, he's fine, you know, and, or, well, I'd rather not say, you know, I had to say he died, um, I said what he died of, and I said how sad it had made me, um, and then I went away afterwards and I thought, hmm, well, as lots of people had read the book where he's the funny toddler, well, then maybe I ought to say to children what happened. And so I just sat there with one of those, do you know those spiral-bound reporter's notebooks? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. And I sat and scribbled for about, I think, about half an hour. And then I tore it out and sent it off to an editor who I trusted, um, Caroline Royds at Walker Books, and I sent it off to her. I think I may have added to it, I, you know, is it a book or, you know, is this, is this anything that interests you sort of thing? And I explained the context in which I'd written it. And she said, yes, wouldn't it be great if Quentin could do it because he's drawn Eddie when he was one and two years old. And Quentin said straight away, and so that's how it evolved. So it evolved out of children's mm. questions. And who it's for, well, both Quentin and I have a sort of interesting kind of... Um, is it ambiguous? Anyway, an interesting position on this is that we make books, we know that they're readable by children but we don't necessarily think they are just only for children mm. do you see yeah. that they go into a, a, well it's only ambiguous if you think adults and children are different so let's say they are so it goes into this kind of ambiguous situation in which adults can read it children can read it can talk about it um that it isn't out of the reach of either mm. 
you know, because there's a way in which, you know, as an adult, when you're sharing a, a book for children that feels very young and it isn't really for you, you just kind of read yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. You'll know this because you've got a toddler. Yeah. So you're going, well, do 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 and again, and you go, oh, right, really? <laughs> you know. Um, and then there are others that you as an adult, a book like Where the Wild Things Are, you can actually get more from it almost each time you read it. I mean, I've started discovering things about Where the Wild Things Are um, that, only in the last year or two. Yeah. And um, so some books, nominally for children, actually go on producing stuff for you because of their kind of latent symbolic value, because they're full of stuff that represents things that correspond to things that you see around you. Mm. So you suddenly go, oh, wow, that thing that happened to me, that's like in Where the Wild Things Are. So I think the sad book, one way or another, has got to that sort of point because at some time or another, we all feel sad. What's the famous R.E.M. song? You know, everyone hurts sometimes. Well, I misquote. Everybody... Everybody hurts. That's right, yeah. Everybody, everybody hurts. That's yeah. it. Everybody hurts sometimes. sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... You know, very, very powerful. And I remember when that, as it happens, Eddie's girlfriend, that was one of her favourite songs before Eddie died. So, you know, there's got a lot of resonance for me, that, uh, that particular song. But it's got a fantastic truism in it that you can't pretend that sad and hurt and grief is not part of the human condition. You can push it to the door, you can you know, have a lovely day, you don't have to be sad all day, but actually in the sort of moving of the furniture around in our minds, the mind furniture, one of the bits of furniture has to be sadness mm. and it, you can't get rid of it, it's there, you know, it's, it's sort of like the piano, you can't get out the room and so it's, it is there, so the question is what you do with it um, and if we stick with the metaphor of the piano, do you play it? Or do you lock it up and pretend it isn't there? Mm. Well, if you do, the trouble is, is the piano will burst open and play tunes, whatever happens. Mm. It's more like a pianola, perhaps. <laughs> it suddenly springs to life and uh, plays you Scott Joplin. You know. <laughs> um, so, uh, I think that's, I've, yeah, that's so, so interesting. So I think you have to do, and so, and in a way, one of the things I was saying with the sad book was, well, maybe you've got some sad stuff, and and there's also bits of saying how I deal with it. So we talked about, do, you know, doing that one thing, boil an egg. I sort of took it one step further and I said in the book, do one thing that you can be proud of, whatever that might be. And it might be something huge or it might be small. But if you do, the piano won't burst into life quite so sort of painfully. Mm. Um, it will somehow or other, the piano will, will, will play a nice tune for you. You use the word chaos. Um, there's some other words like maelstrom and miasma that I often think of in relation to this stuff that we've got these words to describe when, you know, there's what's it, the th one of the laws of thermodynamics that everything turns to entropy, progresses to entropy. So we have entropic and entropy is another word that because, let's say, in your case, you know, you loved your dad and in my case loved Eddie and then when you pull it out, you've got a wound and that somehow is... It, there's this sense of entropy, chaos, miasma, maelstrom, all these kind of ideas. What's the, the Munch painting called? Oh, The um, Scream. The Scream. Yeah. Now, you see, what that does is does that lovely thing that sort of 
the ego, you know, when you're egocentric about pain and grief and so on, is that you say the sky is grieving with you. Mm. You know, you, you, you project your pain onto the world around you. I mean, the artistic word for it is expressionism, but the point is that in a way we all do that. You know, I feel bad, it's raining. It's raining because I feel bad. The pathetic fallacy, so-called. So, but we do that, and that's, that's again, you know, quite sort of funny but nice and sometimes very sad human thing to do. So, again, Quentin did that in the book. Mm. He did the equivalent of Munch. He, he colours the sky. And, oh, I love him for that. That, you see, people think Quentin, oh, he just does those funny little drawings. He doesn't, he, he isn't like that at all. He puts his whole soul into what he's doing. And he's done that with the way, the way in which he's put the figure of Michael in the, in the landscape. And the landscape is reflecting what Michael is thinking. Mm. And um, it's, it's, you know, it's absurd in a kind of very arrogant human way. But at the same time, it feels that's what we do. And then that's to bring it under control. You then diminish the chaos, the miasma. Yeah. Yeah. No. Oh, I thought what you were saying about the mind furniture is extraordinary, and 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 the the power of literature, and the pa- and also I think how much children's literature can be. I don't think it is so much these days. I think people have got a bit nicer about it, but sometimes underrated, like you said, because the most powerful books, like Sad Book. And I, it really struck me, I think probably because I've been reading it, is um, the, the Moomins, the proper Moomin books, which are filled with sadness. <laughs> because what I think is so nice, what these, and a lot of your work does, and Quentin's work too, is like you said, is admit it's in the room. And the children's books that perhaps that we sometimes um, write off are, the, like you said, the da-da-da-da-da, everything's fine, everything's happy, because, you know, they're just happy and sweet stories that keep... Are, you learn a rhythm, you learn music, you're just hearing the sounds, it's great. But the books where it, it, it says to that child or the adult reading it, by the way, we all know there's a, that piano's in the room, we can all see it. And it's like that relief, isn't it? Of like, oh, I thought it was just me who saw the sadness. I thought I was, you know, because the world is telling you it's not there, it's not there. And and yeah, the, the illustrations of Sad Book and your words just saying that, this is how sad it is when someone dies. It's this sad. I remember first time I saw it, I was almost like, I almost, the book felt dangerous. Like I remember picking it up in the kids' book section. I used to work in Deborah Smith and I was in charge of the children's books <laughs> many, mm. many years ago. And um, I remember sort of finding it and being like, whoa, 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 this isn't, you know, that's not my hippo. <laughs> like it felt like, oh, they're saying the thing that I, I didn't know we were all telling the children. That. And I think it's, as you, yeah, you know, if you are, if you do make the choice to have children and you have to explain to them sadness, it's, it's so important. And obviously my daughter asks questions, you know, well, where is grandpa and what happened? And, and we try and be very like, well, he's dead, which has resulted in him. And so my, my husband has lost both his mum and dad as well. So she's only got a grandma. As a result of my daughter saying things like, well, your dad's dead, isn't he, mummy? So you don't have one <laughs> because she's so yeah. matter of fact about it that you're like, and it, it can come at any point, you know, it can come at, during dinner, during ha- having pasta and she'll say, well, you don't have a daddy, but I do. I, my daddy's not dead. And I go, yeah, that's good, isn't it? She goes, yeah, I'm lucky. Your daddy's dead. <laughs> so I, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. And But it's, 
I'd rather... That's that order thing. Yeah. As you see, that's the order thing. What is she doing? Yeah. She's sorting. Yeah. You know, you're like you're sorting apples and oranges. You're sorting red buttons from blue buttons. Yeah. She's saying, right, I've got mum and dad. Let's have a look at mum. Mum hasn't got dad. Now let's look at dad. What's dad got? So she, you know those uh, things, those drawers that you can put on the wall full of little things, you know? Oh, the, yes. The kind of old printed things. Yeah, printed things. things, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you see, you, you pop you slot it. So, look, you're in one of them and you haven't got these extras yeah, yeah. attached to you. But then me, your daughter is, I have. Look, there we are. And so at this stage, she's, if she's under five, she's at this lovely sorting stage. Yeah. You know, is, is a cat and a dog different? Well, no, because they're both pets. <laughs> you know, if you've got a cat and a dog, then they're not different. They're the same. You know, I mean, you, I remember when one of my kids was a toddler, we were staying on a farm and the farmer's dog was called Bob, you see, and we thought he had got this, this was one of his first words, and he kept saying Bob, and it was great because the dog would come and then, you know, and he, it was lovely. And then we were driving along and he looked out the window and saw a cow and he went Bob, because <laughs> it was obviously a creature with four yeah, legs yeah. <laughs> standing in the middle of the field and we thought, ah, oh right, what has he got sorted? Well, of course, he had sorted something, yeah, but it yeah. wasn't what... We go cow, different from dog. Not in his world. Yeah. In his world, it was a bob, and that was a bob as well, <laughs> which is brilliant. So the point is, you know, she's sorting. And, of course, sorting it, it can, in a sense, be, I think the word is superordinate. It's more important than mm. the emotions at this stage because she doesn't know about the pain mm. connected yeah, to that. Yeah, yeah. So it's very ordinary. She's just sorting. Mm. You've got one, you haven't got one. They're not <laughs> yeah. there. It's very binary. Yeah. And, I mean, it's quite, in a sense, it's quite a useful reminder, isn't it? Mm. I mean, in another world, maybe in another time, another place, this sort of having, not having of, of loved ones. Yeah. Maybe, I don't know, was it less painful if you knew that, that you know, you died by the time you, every, every possibility that people died in childbirth, babies didn't live, you didn't live much beyond 50, mm. that your sense of the human was must have been very, very different because the fact that you might last in the company of loved ones for longer than 30, 40 years mm. might have seemed like, well, impossible. And the odd times it happened, people must have thought it was like a either a gift from the gods or just something very, very strange. You can inure yourself from the life cycle, that bit of the life cycle. You're not a doctor, mm. you're not a nurse, you're not seeing dead bodies, you're not a funeral person who lays people out. So you can get by 10, 20, 30 years possibly without ever mm. making yourself acquainted with death. So when it comes, it's a whoosh, it's a bit of a surprise. Yeah, and... I I sort of, obviously, again, I'm not glad he died when I was 15, but one of the strange benefits of joining the club early, as we say on the show, is that I'm aware of it. I'm aware. I'm, I can see the sad piano, <laughs> to continue our metaphor. And I find it really weird when I speak to people who... I've met people in their 50s, and they're telling me about their grandparents. And I think, oh, my God, you've still got... Gra and they still got both parents. And they're like, oh, yeah, I've never really been to a funeral. And I think, oh, my God. Like... And I can see, obviously, that's lovely for them. They've had wonderful experiences. But I think, wow, you're, like you said, you're in for a big shock because it is going to happen. And it's, I kind of, I don't know if you, I, you know, I've never projected how everyone grieves. But for me and my grief, it, it's something I find 
I try and find some positivities and I think well at least I'm prepared <laughs> at least I'm aware I'm not surprised when people when people die or things happen I'm like yeah that that's life that's what happens and I think with my daughter we've my son's you know only a little baby so we're not there yet but with my daughter we are trying to as you said start that ordering now because then I think when you do hit the emotion of oh that's sad you've already got you've already got oh people die so when you go oh and it's sad I feel like you're not a level ahead but you're you've like laid the groundwork you've sowed the raked the soil well so then when you put that seed on and by the way it's going to be really painful and sad they're like oh okay rather than having to go what do you mean people die which I think you know it happens to a lot of people when it's when it's sudden like that and especially yeah you know like I did if you go through something as a teenager or a child and you're having to get your head around oh people die I didn't even I didn't even have that bit yet plus all this mm, I think I think to be honest that's actually how it hit me mm. because it was a child who died yeah. no hang on that's not in the order no of not at all no that's not possible yeah um and sorry this wasn't in the in the script in the script was that I would watch all my children mm. grow up to be adults I would be you know even if I copied I'll cop it first yeah so the idea that just overnight one of them could be taken away and that's not strictly true, mm. just die and then they're taken away physically. That, 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 so, in fact, that was something that I was unprepared mm. for, I guess, as, as unprepared for as it's possible to be. You know, I really had a laid out a scenario in which I could see, you know, Eddie doing this and Eddie doing that and, you know, he was making plans and he'd just written a play and, you know, and we, what were we going to do with the play and we found someone to who was going to possibly put it on and then, you know, and then like a week later he died, you see. He'd, he'd only just written the play. So, you know, it was, it was mid-scenario, mm. do you see? So that's, that's what happens. You know, there is, you know, obviously as we get older we realise that old people die, so you kind of start making accommodations when people go 70 plus. Mm. But it's very, very hard and, you know, not necessarily wise anyway to sort of factor in child death oh, yeah. into your life yeah. as a parent. I mean, it's something you just fear because, you know, you're devoting your attention, care, love, um, duty, responsibility, everything uh, onto this person and all your children. So how can you factor into that the idea that suddenly... It's not going to happen. Again, you see, we don't live in a time of war. In a time of war, you know, again, sorry, I've been reading this thing about the Blitz in Belfast. People were walking around going, well, probably, we, you know, the bombs aren't going to land on us because um, we're not Liverpool. We're a bit further away. And then suddenly the bombs fell out the sky. And, of course, people were emotionally, psychologically, just absolutely not prepared for it in any way at all. Things weren't ready. Shelters weren't built and so on. And then it came again, and you can see that part of the trauma for that city at that point was they hadn't made a space for it mm. in their in their heads, minds, bodies, uh, or in the preparations. You know, they didn't even have the ACAC guns. You know, enough of the things to try and pull some of the bombers out of the sky. You know, so at moments like that, the grief is like accentuated. Mm. Oh you, yeah, you yeah. You haven't, as it were, you know, like when you're training swimming or something you hold your breath so that you kind of learn how to cope with the the pain of not breathing sort of thing you know you you kind of make these physical preparations and mental preparations and um i think with 
children in the modern world here in Britain, not in a place of war, we, we don't make these preparations, which of course ties in with COVID, is that though many of the people who've died are old, as people are seeing, they weren't ready for their old people to die because they weren't necessarily that ill. Mm, yeah. So we've had a, a, a kind of thing where, yes, I was gearing myself up for the fact that my grandfather, you know, is 75 or 80 or whatever, but he wasn't ready to go because he was gardening yesterday. Yeah. And, you know, he, and then people are sort of feeling this thing of being cut short and of course, plenty of people under under seventy have have, yeah. have died or been seriously ill and had knock on effects and so on. So, you know, there's, there's that going on now for us. But the idea that children are taken from you with a an accident or a, a sudden lethal illness, you can't really prepare yourself for it. Or maybe you can, but I did. I, I certainly hadn't to put it that way. No, I not necessarily should. No, even. I, mean, I think you're right. You know, and we we talk a lot on the show about there's no hierarchy of grief you know every grief is welcome but the thing that we always say is but the loss of a child is above all these things because it because it is out of the natural order that's what I've had grief psychotherapists say to me as well of like like you said it's not even with my dad you know he was young he was 44 and ironically when you were saying that earlier he was training he was a marathon runner triathlon runner he'd been training for an Ironman so we had a similar like oh but he's he's really healthy he doesn't what do you mean he's not someone we no one was worried but he was my dad so that was so you see that was out of the natural order you mm. see, see no hierarchy of grief and I, I mean i agree with that um and the thing was you've just described something that in actual fact was out of the hierarchy because you know i, I haven't got that equivalent but you know if you're sitting there as a teen and your dad is hyper fit and super fit and part of the fun is going to see him run marathons and and all this stuff and then bonk, it's gone, then the natural order you had in your head mm. has been disrupted. Yes, you know, if your dad had been 80 and had been poorly at various times and so on, you would have, as it were, done what I'm calling sort of breath training. You'd have yeah. sort of said, well, he may go, but you weren't there. You were in a completely different place. You know, Dad's going to run the, the marathon this year. I wonder whether he'll run a marathon at 50. I wonder, yeah. oh, God, it was a funny idea. Would he run two miles? I, I'm sorry, I don't want to put words in your no, mouth. No, 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 yeah, I know what you mean. There's a natural order yeah. that you were as much part of as I was with Eddie, that I've got an 18-year-old, you know, next week he's he's going to write another play. You know, it's it's not really different mm. from what how you must have been sorting, yeah. to use that word again, with your with your dad. I mean, I think... I mean, I've, I've been doing some research about my relatives um, and several of them um, died in the Holocaust. So I've read a lot about the Holocaust over the years, one way or another. And the kind of levels of death and destruction, when we talk about hierarchies of grief, they're kind of unimaginable because, you, you know, you quickly come across people who have lost eight relatives... Mm you know, mum, dad, all grandparents, uncles, aunts, they're the sole survivor. So my father's cousin, effectively, that, that's what's happened to him. And, you know, he lost his uh, parents, his aunts, his uncles, and even people that I don't know about. And he came to this country and couldn't bring himself to go back to Poland. So, because there was nobody. Mm. So you sort of think, is that, a, is that another kind of grief when you you lose 
everybody who you used to have yeah. as a in these nurture setups mm. that we've created these family networks that we think are how we learn to care and be cared for these are things we've set up over thousands of years whatever setup we have in twos threes eights tens you know it's a nice yiddish word mishpucher it means the sort of wider family so caring and being cared for is at the core of the human experience and the moment you feel that gone poof, you know that must be it is difficult that's to say if people are not caring for you for you who should be <laughs> according to you and you're not caring for them then you you know that's one of the routes to becoming pathological we know and but if they're snatched away from you by war or persecution how do you stay i mean i sort of when i look, look i mean as it happens he's he's still alive he's 97 wow. but he's sort of slipped away um how do you how do you make you know go back to my sorting word how do you sort that mm. and sort it in a way that you aren't just viscerally angry and bitter every single day of your life yeah you know why why how do you not think that something unjustifiably cruel has happened and it's in a way you see again thinking about the blitz in belfast the bombs fell out of the sky we were at war with them they were at war with us we were doing that to them they were doing that to us we were right they were wrong that's fine and you know and it feels unjust that your house was bombed and the person next door wasn't but when it's persecution there's a willfulness about it they're angry with you because you exist that's what you know that was about they hate you and so they've just eliminated you and what do you do with the grief about that why how did he how was my father's cousin able to live for 97 years and not want to destroy the world mm. you know so there's that level of grief i can't i can't fathom i mean i i was told when i i, I mean i haven't seen him that often in my life but when i went to see him i was told that he he wouldn't talk about all sorts of things mm. they just sort of warned me that he, he won't talk about them and instead they told me some other stories some quite funny um so that was quite interesting it was clearly one of the things he found um of coping and the other thing was was that miraculously and incredibly because another cousin died aged 103 um a photograph of his mother appeared in america in a locked up cupboard what and so we were able to send it to oh him oh my god and it's the second ever photograph of his mother and the only photograph of his aunt <gasps> that he that he had and um his son wrote to me and said that when well, I sent it digitally, that he was mesmerised by it, and that it gave him a moment of happiness in the twilight of his life, was the way his son put it. And it's just, I just thought, what could that feel like? That you haven't seen your mum since you were eighteen, because some people thought that she shouldn't exist, along with another millions and millions of other people who were unworthy to exist according to the Nazis. And then there you've got this photograph of her and her sister, your aunt, and you in the same picture. There's the three of them walking down the street. You, I just sort of think a moment like that in terms of... Would it, would it, did it make him grieve all over again? Was mm. it something where, you know, go back to our piano, did the piano suddenly start playing this awful lament to him that 
he just wasn't ready for. But as I say, Sam said he stared at the picture and noticed that she was wearing a nice coat. He mentioned that, uh, you know, it's, it's almost like a Jewish joke. Well, at least she, was, at least she had a nice coat on. I mean, it's, it's kind of... Do you know the one of the, the, uh, the mother running along? She sees her son is, has fallen into the canal. A grown-up son has fallen into the canal and she shouts, Help, help! My son, the estate agent, is drowning. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of, well, you know, she's got a nice coat. I don't know, it's sort of a... It's some sort of strange thing, anyway, that he, he did there. But um, it's a, it's a, again, it's a coping thing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's just... She's, she's got a nice coat, you know. <laughs> Who, I mean, like you said, how it's hard to even comprehend that level of grief, isn't it? Because it's... I talk a lot you know to people all sorts of people about losses and I've talked to people who've had very multiple losses in in quite quick succession and one springs to mind a brilliant um writer called Emily Dean who lost her her sister her mum and her dad quite quickly and she used a great expression which I always come back to so her her parents were quite um I think her dad was an arts correspondent in the 60s and her mum was natural and you know quite bohemian and so she had a quite mad North London bohemian upbringing and she said well, after, after her sister died she always used the phrase she lost her witness she lost the witness to someone you could go do you remember when that happened like did that happen did we all get up at midnight and put on a play for all these actors and she, you know her sister's like yeah that happened and I just think what you're describing with your dad's cousin there of like he lost everything you know he lost all the witnesses that could say this is who you are you're this you're this we're this and you're this and yeah it, it's an extraordinary level of grief to to try and even fathom and to try and fathom as you said car carry on living um michael i obviously i've known your books forever in my life so yeah it's real real honor thank you and to speak about eddie as well and how you've written about him and how you've remembered him is yeah truly a magnificent thing to to receive that present so thank you well thanks very much for having me on there another time perhaps. <laughs> You can follow Michael on Twitter at Michael Rosen Yes, and his new book, Many Different Kinds of Love, A Story of Life, Death and the NHS is available to buy now. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Griefcast. The show was recorded remotely and was edited by Kate Holland and the music is thanks to The Glue Ensemble. And now to play us out, another brilliant poem from Michael and his brand new book. My teenage son feels that it's his right to punch me if he gets a football score prediction right and I get it wrong. I'm right and you're wrong, he says. What are you? Wrong, I say. What are you, he says? Wrong, I say. Now the next thing coming up is the punch. I put my hand up. You can't punch me, I say. I'm on blood thinners. If you punch me, you'll bruise me and I'll bleed to death very, very slowly from the inside. It stops him from punching me. What are you, he says? Wrong, I say. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.